You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Lanark. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, January 26, 2023. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus outlined their priorities for the 2023 session. More coming up next in your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. This is your State House Roundup. I'm Benedict Jones. On Monday, the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus outlined their priorities for the 2023 session, emphasizing a focus on education. Chair of the IBLC, State Representative Earl Harris Jr. from East Chicago, touched on how the caucus aims to close the achievement gap through policy. The achievement gap between African-American students and their non-Black peers has been a problem in Indiana for generations. COVID-19 made this even worse. Now we are challenged to not only bring African-American students and students of color back to the level that they were um, pre-pandemic, but also elevate them to the same level as white peers, emphasizing the importance of educational achievement while not just helping our kids in the classroom, but also opening doors for them professionally, making sure that they have opportunities post high school to go on to successful careers. When Indiana's workforce is more educated and highly trained, all Hoosiers will benefit. Harris Jr. explained several bills filed by the IBLC, including House Bill 1499. This bill would allow qualifying students to be automatically enrolled into the 21st Century Scholars Program. He elaborated on this initiative. Several of our bills this session aim to improve schools throughout the state and create more pathways to higher education. House Bill 1499, which I filed, and Senate Bill 435, which Senator Melton filed, are aimed at making automatic qualification for 21st century scholars program for our students. I'm sure I'm not the only one of our reps and senators that have had people approach them and say, hey, my, my child is going to college. Do you have any thoughts on how they can advance and pay for college? And 21st century scholars is one of the first things I say, but unfortunately, a lot of times, the parent doesn't know about it, the child doesn't know about it, and by the time we have the conversation, it's too late. So we want to make this an automatic enrollment so that students are automatically enrolled, it's already set in place, and we don't have to worry, or they don't have to worry about that it's too late and this educational uh, funding option is available. We also know that roughly 81% of students that go into the program enroll into college and university. Um, despite being more likely to live in poverty, however, African-American students and students of color are not proportionately represented in the program. So automatic enrollment will help. Harris Jr. also highlighted House Bills 1571 and 1153, authored by representatives Robin Shackelford and Gregory Porter, respectively. He explained what these bills would do to advance the IBLC's priority if passed. 
Um, it takes more than scholarship to help students succeed. Through House Bill 1571, authored by Representative Robin Shackelford, this creates Reading Specialist Certification Fund. This allows teachers to apply for a grant for the purpose of obtaining a science-based Reading Specialist Certification. Setting our students up for success means that the people that educate them need to be set up for success and be able to provide the best education possible. We also have House Bill 1153, which establishes a division of educational opportunity and academic success to assess cultural competency in public schools. This is authored by Representative Porter. Um, every year, colleges and universities will be assessed to determine how they prepare future educators to be able to effectively teach and communicate to children throughout multiple backgrounds. He talked more generally about closing the achievement gap and what long-term benefits he believes the IBLC's legislative agenda would create. By closing the achievement gap, we would also address issues pertaining to public health and public safety. When people have the opportunity to go to college and obtain a high-wage job, they're more likely to have success for adequate health care and healthy foods. Furthermore, when people's needs are met, they're less likely also to commit crime. If we invest in remedying the achievement gap now, all Hoosiers will build a return on the investment in years to come. Everyone talks about wanting to not leave behind, everyone talks about wanting to make sure that we leave behind a better community, a better state, a better nation. The IBLC 2023 legislative agenda is our chance to do that. By enhancing education in our state, working to close the achievement gap, that prevents many students from achieving uh, student gap. That will make sure that all students are able to achieve their full potential, and we will ultimately boost the Indiana workforce and create a better quality of life for everyone. To learn more about the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, visit WFHB.org following this broadcast. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnick. At the Utility Service Board meeting on January 17th, board member Amanda Burnham was nominated for president of the board, and board member Megan Parmenter was nominated for vice president. The election of board officers was approved unanimously. Next, the board approved the consent agenda. There was only one item on the consent agenda, an approval with blue chip technologies for $15,000 to repair a 25-foot grit screw. The board approved the consent agenda unanimously. Up next, Director of Utilities Vic Kelson gave his report. He thanked the board members for their work as elected officers of the board. Uh, staff reports, I'd like to uh, uh, just a few things. The first one is to thank Jeff for his service as president in the past year. We appreciate your leadership and your attention to all the details of everything that goes on. And, and uh, you've been here a long time. And I think... Well, since I've been here, it's your first time in the chair, and I think you did a good job of running the meetings, and, and I've never felt like you didn't support the department, and it's been, it's been a real pleasure to have you in the chair. You're very welcome. Um, also, thanks to Amanda for her uh, year as vice president, and we'll look forward to, uh, to seeing more of her in the coming weeks as we go, as we go on. Kelson also introduced six new utilities department staff members. Uh, the second thing is to welcome new employees. Uh, uh, we have a number of, of new employees. Uh, Kaylee uh, Bollinger is a water treatment operator at the Dillman plant. 
Uh, she is a graduate of the um, uh, uh, Alliance for Indiana Rural Water uh, 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 Apprenticeship Program, and uh, we're happy to have her. Uh, Liz Carter, who's actually here tonight, uh, joins us from the planning department uh, as our new MS program, MS4 program coordinator. Uh, Alan Christie uh, in TND is a utility specialist one. Uh, Matt Daberton joined our engineering uh, division as a utilities technician. Uh, Zachary Palu is a hydrant specialist and temporary part-time hydrant specialist with the uh, uh, environmental group. And Scott Runyon uh, has joined TND as a utilities specialist one. So we're uh, filling in some of the vacancies that, it, that we've been uh, dealing with over time. Parmenter also thanked board member Jeff Amon for his work as president. Well, I'll just reiterate what Vic said about um, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much for your leadership, and I certainly enjoy learning from you at all of our meetings and appreciate all your questions, and I'm glad you're continuing to serve, and uh, we'll be able to consult you when we have questions as president and vice president. The next Utility Service Board meeting will be held on January 30th. At the Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting held on January 18th, Director Greer Carson gave his monthly report on the state of the library. So a couple of highlights, as we usually do. Our content development team recently reviewed and inventoried the Herald Times print archives to determine their condition and to consider how some, if not all, of these materials might fit into our collection practices and or digitization goals. Unfortunately, the physical archives are not in adequate condition to either store or effectively digitize on our part. However, in discussions with IU's digitization staff in the Indiana State Library, we're very confident that the preservation of and access to the HD content itself is ensured via microfilm, which we do collect and make publicly available here at MCPL. There are also possible options for digitizing the content directly from the microfilm, which we'd like to explore going forward. We are once again the proud recipients of the Wall Family Grant. This year, we'll be using the money to build a digital creativity station at Ellettsville. Our Children's Services Department received a few well-deserved compliments from parents and caregivers. I was struck by a unique recommendation for our Library of Things collection, folding kayaks. Some quick Googling showed me that this isn't a bad suggestion at all, but I'd probably want to have a quick conversation with our friends at Parks and Rec before unleashing dozens of novice kayakers on the Blake Griffey's staff. But it's great to see that our community is expressing a growing interest in this exciting new area of collection development. A uh, quick note on our department updates per our annual board meeting calendar. We won't have an update this month due in part to the length of our agenda and the finance committee meeting immediately following this meeting. But generally speaking, we're going to be pretty fluid with our schedule of department updates this year. We have a few new managers, we have a new branch opening, and we have plenty of moving parts across the entire system right now. And there are likely going to be a couple of double features uh, before the year's out. And if you do the math, once we open Southwest, there are more department updates than there are months in the year. So we'll be a little flexible with how we do those department updates. Uh, and finally, I've uh, kind of passed around a print copy of the Indiana State Library's annual report for 2022, as it features MCPL and our role in the new fine free movement within Indiana, which is great to see. 
board member Kathy Loser asked Carson to talk more about the baking kits and remarked that this is quite the collection. Carson responded, Yeah, so another part of our Library of Things collection, the baking kits was a proposal for a uh, for a set of circulating baking kits, uh, which came from a group of staff who won our Library Innovation Grant last year, and they're going to be coming to present to us in April and show you all the kits themselves and talk about how they've been circulating and share some uh, patron feedback feedback uh, and some of the sort of what you might call circulating programming that goes around with these baking kits. Here are some recipes you can try and show us how you did, bit of a nailed it kind of approach to doing baking kits at the library. So uh, it's, it's a great thing. And again, our Library of Things collection development is really taking off. So we're excited by that. Next, Carson gave updates on the new Southwest branch construction. The drywall hanging and finishing continues throughout the building. The exterior limestone veneer installation is nearly complete and I have to say looks fantastic. The rooftop units are finally in place and the painting in the garage as well as the interior bathroom tile installation has begun. The electrical switch gear from Duke has been delayed due to a supplier issue and this impacts the heating of the interior of the building and the permanent installation of the elevator and other mechanical pieces which require dedicated electrical. So we are currently and have been for some time using portable heating units in order to stay on schedule with that drywall installation among some other things. Carson asked the board to approve of the recent change orders that have come up during the construction. The change orders. So first, the storm and sanitary tie-ins need modified. This change order is for the materials, labor, and some additional rock excavation needed to move those tie-ins to the main drainage systems on the northeast side of the building. That is the most expensive change order out of all of these. Then we have a minor modification to our flooring plan in the lobby, which sits right outside of the large programming room where we prefer to have built-in carpet rather than laying a physical carpet down for obvious safety reasons. We need to add blocking to the walls in the staff work area so that we can eventually hang coat hooks and other wall-mounted storage solutions. And we're looking to add a motorized roller shades for the windows and large programming rooms. The uh, traditional pull shades for windows like this are actually being phased out due to an industry shift to safer blind and shade pulls, which don't present as much of a hazard to children. So our options are to go with a crank shade, a battery-powered shade, or a hardwired motor shade. And we would prefer the hardwire motor shade for both durability and aesthetic purposes. And then finally, we need to add a bulkhead on the south side of what we're calling the quiet reading room. It's going to hide a support beam that's in that space and therefore make that part of the ceiling look cleaner and more consistent with the rest of the space. Board Secretary Carrie Essary asked what the total of the change orders amounted to. Carson responded that they have the funds for the changes, however, that they will need to start being more selective moving forward. So we have the money to do this. This brings our, this is a $45,714 set of change orders. This brings our grand total of change orders to $432,920. So we're still within our contingency area, but I will say now that we need to start looking carefully at each individual change order going forward as we get closer to opening the branch because we're, we've certainly had a lot of them. I don't expect any more rock excavation related change orders after this, but there will certainly be some other minor things. 
there were a couple of pieces we looked at doing uh, recently in the parking lot that we're probably going to defer on just because we're at that point where we say that might be a luxury versus that's an essential thing like the storm and sanitary tie-in piece. So that is, that is certainly the mentality we want to have at this point. The change orders were approved unanimously. The next Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting will be held on February 15th. In today's feature report, we have Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. Joining us for January 2023 is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the co-director of the Gender Center and Associate Professor of History and Political Science for the University of Indianapolis. Dr. Wilson speaks with host Jim Allison about women in the state legislature. We now turn to the January edition of Civic Conversations on the WFHB Local News. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. She is co-director of the Gender Center and Associate Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Indianapolis. Dr. Wilson will be talking with us today about the increasing number of women in our legislatures. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for having me. Uh, Now, it's apparent to everybody with an eye that the U.S. now has a record number of women in high offices of city, state, and federal government. And I personally have seen phenomenal growth in my, my own lifetime. Uh, In a nutshell, how did this happen? Well, it truly is the reaping of rewards of of decades and generations of women's work to be involved in government and policy. And it's exciting to be uh, an observer, uh, passionate about policy and and government right now, because we're seeing that play out. Um, There were truly decades of women um, seeking these kind of opportunities. But what we found is the first generation of women um, looking in terms of public office were oftentimes either the wives or daughters of politicians who'd passed away while in office. And so they picked up, they continue those terms. And then really, once you get into the 50s and 60s, you see women running in their own right. But it's not until truly 1992, when we talk about the year of the woman, where you see a dramatic increase of female candidates. And having more women in office provides a a sense that obviously it's possible for young girls and for other women looking that this is an opportunity, this is something that they can aspire to. And it's also important in terms of policy that's produced because we know that women provide a different perspective and experience. So right now, as we sit in 2023, we see increasing numbers of women in office and we benefit from the policies that they're influential in. Okay. Now, with these larger numbers of women in government, what assets do you think that they'll bring to the table 
in government and in politics. We know women provide a different perspective in terms of how they approach leadership and what they do, but I would even start off with the very basics. So we talk about representation. There's both symbolic and substantive. And so when we think of symbolic representation, it's purely the idea of symbolism, that if I see other women in public office, I'm encouraged by the fact I could do that if I wanted to. I could see myself there. Um, My daughter could see herself in that kind of position. And that's the idea of symbolism, but it's not just limited to that. So if we think of substantive representation, we know women tend to be more focused on cohesion and community building. So there's an emphasis in terms of collaboration, whereas men tend to be more hierarchical in their leadership and focus. I think the ideal kind of democracy, any even a group project, quite frankly, doesn't have to be government related, involves both of those styles. It's a combination of those. So recognizing that women approach leadership differently, women bring a different perspective and experience, I think is a large part of the contribution and a reason why it's most important to have them in any position where decisions are being made, but especially those in government, because those impact us all as part of the public. Sounds like democracy. (laughs) It is. Well, it seems to me that the women in these high offices are significantly younger now than just a few years ago. And I could name several specific examples everywhere from governorships to the U.S. Congress. And I wonder, do you think this, I'll call it a female youth movement, has improved American government? And has it come perhaps at the expense of experience? And has that same movement had any downsides that you would be willing to admit? (laughs) You know, I would say as an optimist, I think it definitely has some advantages we can discuss There could be limitations, but at its very best, it it might be a reaction to the typical politics we've seen play out. So if we if we step back, just talking about age, regardless of gender, historically, there was this idea that you had to pay your dues and you had to climb the ladder and the ladder was very tall and you had to spend decades dedicating yourself to a political party before you were tapped for this position. And then that and that there really was a hierarchy of expectations We see that eroding now for a couple of different reasons. And one of them is that we don't carry the same expectation of candidates as we did in the past with regards to political experience. So we've had people serve as president, but also in other areas of government that didn't necessarily have political experience before. That used to be seen as an absolute must. And now we're saying, well, you don't have to have that same kind of background. That makes that ladder shorter. And it also means that people recognize you you can be younger and you still have something to contribute. Now, if you add that with the intersectionality of women, this is tremendous because historically women were kept out of the process as a barrier because they didn't have the time to commit to the political party or to the political landscape more largely uh, because after they maybe graduated high school or perhaps attended and graduated college, they may have dedicated themselves to their families. They would have been expected to more than men. And they wouldn't have been able to start climbing that ladder until their children graduated and moved off, went away. And by then, they're decades behind their male counterparts. So for women, this provides a a particularly interesting opportunity. But I think there needs to be balance in anything. And truly, having institutional memory, having lived experience is valuable for policy, as is having the energy, sometimes maybe the gall or the curiosity to try different things. If we have too much of one or the other, we're probably missing out. And so to have a nice balance uh, between both, I I think, is essential for good policymaking. All right. 
Now, despite the progress we've all seen, it remains a fact, I think everybody would have to admit, that the proportion of women in high government office is still below their proportion of the U.S. population. Could you give us the ex the approximate numbers here, those two proportions? Yeah, so we're looking at just under 28% if we look at Congress in terms of um, female membership. It's a little bit better if you look at the state level for state legislatures, so the average is right around 32%. And for listeners who are curious, I always recommend looking at the Center for American Women in Politics. It's based out of Rutgers, and they keep lots of historical data as well as state-level comparisons. But in both cases I mentioned, we're talking less than 33%, right? Uh, and those are just the legislative bodies. But that's true essentially at every level of government and in every branch. Women are underrepresented. Um, compared to being proportionate in the population to around 50, 51%. Now, the system of government we have is self-selection, uh, whether or not a person chooses to run for office, something I'm sure we'll get to chat about later. Uh, but you don't have to declare your candidacy. We don't require 51% of Congress to be female just because the population is. There are a lot of underrepresented groups, and a large part is because not everybody chooses to run for office. I be absolutely remiss, though, if I didn't add that when we look in terms of intersectionality, it's even worse beyond just gender and sex, the purpose of this conversation, right? If we start looking at race, if we start looking at ethnicity, if we start looking at education um, and background. So there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of ways that we look at our elected officials and our institutions, and they don't represent the people um, in that same kind of way. Gender, of course, is just one of those. Okay, given that uh, we agree that you should, we should get those two numbers closer together, proportion in office and proportion in the population, uh, can you suggest how we might do that? Is it just a matter of time, do you think? Or we have, have we already reached some kind of absolute limit? And a related question, have women perhaps found it relatively hard to finance their campaigns? Well, I certainly hope we haven't reached the absolute limit because that'd be uh, very depressing. But I also am afraid if we just expect things to change over time without doing anything to initiate the progress, that's probably not the solution either. What we found in terms of critical mass um, and the idea of encouraging more women to vote and to run for office specifically is just that, being encouraging, creating pipelines, working on recruiting quality candidates, anyone you know uh, thinking, you know, would this be a good person to serve in office? A lot of the literature shows us that women are less likely to consider themselves for political office relative to men. And that's a lot of research done by Richard Fox and Jennifer Lawless. But in part, part the reason we see this happening um, is because women look at running for office differently. They consider different things. And specifically with campaign finance, there's no research that says, oh, this is this is the problem. In fact, there are a lot of challenges. But we do know that there is a wage gap. We do know that women make less. We know that women still carry a burden of the domestic duties relative to men in most households. And I know that is a generalization. But all of these things amount to more and more barriers, more and more obstacles placed in front of a female candidate versus what we necessarily see in front of a male candidate. And one other important thing to add here is that campaigns are prohibitively Expensive. If you look at this past congressional cycle, when we're in the 100,000 millions for some of these Senate seats, they're not cheap to run. Very few people self 
fundraise, uh, but you do have to be comfortable with asking people for money and asking them regularly and often and over and over again. And recognizing some of the ways that we've socialized women to be different and some of the ways that politics is set up. I think there are additional barriers that we have to be realistic and understanding female candidates and male candidates don't have the same pathway to success as the other one. Okay. Now there have been several groups that have recruited women to stand for election. A national group would be Emily's List and closer to home, we have Indiana's Women for Change Mentoring uh, Academy. How important are these groups, would you say, to building increasing numbers of women in the legislature? These groups are essential. And hats off to them, truly, because they recognize the value of female leadership and not just encouraging individual women to run, but setting a pathway forward, creating a training program and a process. I would add, too, in Indiana, um, the Democrats have Hoosier Women Forward. The Republicans have the Luger series. But these are created from the political parties because of their recognition that it's important not just to encourage women to run for office, but to create a process, to create a training program, to create strategies for them, to give them the tools for success. We know we have what we call political pipelines. And for women specifically, we talk about these professions that have a pathway to politics. So things like uh, places like education, business, already being involved in politics, not in elected office, but serving in administration. And of course, law, because that's the most prominent position we see reflected in in politics. But in any one of these pathways, we recognize that this is a place where you have women who would naturally fit as candidates. Now, I feel it as being double-sided. I I have this bittersweet feeling towards it because on one hand, you want to strengthen those pipelines, right? We recognize that that is where a majority of women who might be interested in running for politics would already come from. They'd already have some of these natural talents. That'd be great. But we also have to ask ourselves, what industries are absent? Um, What areas are women um, not being represented from? And and those areas, quite frankly, they're going to be impacted in policy. Uh, In particular, I always think of healthcare. And you have a number of women involved in healthcare. They're part of the system. That's where they've dedicated their careers and occupations. And yet they're not necessarily reflected in the same way in public office. So recognizing kind of that double-edged sword in terms of pipeline professions and, of course, the value of organizations, as we've discussed, um, that help recruit the candidates and give them the tools and information they need to have strong candidacies and ultimately win. Okay, thank you, Dr. Laura Wilson, for your insights on the increasing number of women in our legislatures. And to our listening audience, thank you very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we hope you can join us when we talk to Marshall Feldman, who is the state coordinator for the Citizens Climate Lobby.